0: The life of Samuel was a stream of unbroken holiness. If you were to plot his years on a timeline, there would be no breaks for rebellion, no seasons for sowing wild oats, no lapses of spiritual laziness, no periods of moral compromise. As a child, Samuel's mother dedicated him to God and he remained devoted for the rest of his long life. Samuel, to me, is an example of compounded godliness. You know, when you open a money market account at the bank, you expect to benefit from compound interest. The money you make then in turn makes more money. The interest rolls back into the investment. It feeds on itself, it builds, and it grows, and it snowballs. And the same principle applies to spiritual investments. The person who lives their life for God receives compound benefits. A heart devoted to purity grows increasingly pure. A mind fixed on heavenly things becomes more and more elevated in its thoughts. A will bent toward God grows in the direction of the bend It leans out further and further toward God. A spirit willing to muster faith adds muscle to that faith that it musters. Jesus said in Luke chapter 8, verse 18, Whoever has, to him more will be given. To me, this was Samuel. Years of compounded purity and loyalty and faith and listening to God, it all added up. And it compounded into a man of character and integrity and spiritual stature. His years of godly living bestowed upon Samuel an authority that enabled him to hold the nation in check and to usher in a new age of Israel's history. In Jeremiah chapter 15 verse 1, there the Lord himself comments on Samuel. The Lord is bemoaning the sin of a future generation when he makes this statement. Even if Moses and Samuel stood before me, my mind would not be favorable toward this people. But notice there, he lumps Moses and Samuel into the same category. That's quite a compliment. Both these men were powerful intercessors. Both were leaders. Both were godly, courageous men. Here's why young people need to live sold-out lives to Jesus Christ. Because holiness compounds like interest. A life devoted to Christ at an early age not only benefits you now, but the years of godly living grow into a stature and an authority and a character that God can use mightily. Make too many withdrawals from God. Don't give godliness an opportunity to accumulate. Create too many lapses on your timeline and you lose out. But allow that godliness to grow and compound and it becomes great gain. In the days of Samuel, God needed a man of stature and influence to lead this nation through a transition. Samuel was the last of the judges, but he was the first of the prophets. The prophets were men that God used to speak to the kings of Israel. And Samuel was the prophet who foresaw the beginning of Israel's monarchy. He anointed the first two kings of Israel, Saul, then later David. And he gave them the needed instruction that God had for them. Samuel's ministry, in a sense, was similar to that of John the Baptist, both were lifelong Nazarites and both were forerunners of Davidic kings. Samuel served David first in that divinely appointed lineage, whereas John served Jesus, the last of that same lineage, for Jesus is heir to all of the promises that God made to his servant David. Samuel has also been called the prophet of prayer. And on several occasions, we'll find him rallying the nation to pray. As God said in Jeremiah 15, he was one of the mightiest intercessors in all of the Bible. Is it any wonder that when this man died, the entire nation gathered to his home in Ramah in order to mourn his death? The people of Israel loved Samuel because they knew that Samuel loved them. The story of Samuel begins in chapter 1 with the introduction of Elkanah and his two wives, Peninnah, who had children, and Hannah, who was barren. Each year, Elkanah and his household went to worship God at the tabernacle in Shiloh. But it was during those trips that Peninnah began to pick on poor Hannah. We're told in verse 6, Hannah's rival also provoked her severely to make her miserable. Literally, the word in the Hebrew is to thunder. In other words, she stirred her up. She turned her into an emotional storm because the Lord had closed her womb. So it was year by year when she went up to the house of the Lord that she provoked her. Therefore, she wept and did not eat. And notice again that year by year. This just kept going on. It was a perpetual problem. In ancient times, barrenness was the heaviest burden a woman could bear. It carried the stigma of a curse. And digs from this rival, Penina, made matters worse. Here's another example of why polygamy was a bad idea. It doesn't take long for brides to become rivals. And the husband and kids get caught in the middle of the mayhem. Once, Mark Twain was arguing with a Mormon when the fellow asked him to quote a verse that prohibited polygamy. Mark Twain said, that's easy. No man can serve two masters. God tolerated polygamy, but he certainly didn't approve of it. Sort of like divorce, he tolerated it, but he was against it and still is. God created one man and one woman to live in a lifelong marital relationship. That was God's plan. Notice too in verse 5, the Lord had closed her womb. God is sovereign over all things, and that includes human conception. He can close a womb, he can open a womb, and at times he does both. For purposes that are known to him. Here too we have to trust. In God's loving sovereignty. And if all Hannah had to deal with. Was the Lord's sovereign will. I'm sure that she probably would not have been so upset. She loved the Lord. And she trusted him to work in her life. It was Penina. (laughs) That was causing the storm. Penina quite frankly, was a jerk. And she certainly knew how to jerk Hannah's chain. Just bring up the barrenness. And she could see it hurt Hannah, send her into a funk. In verse 7, Hannah is so upset that she won't eat. She's sulking during supper. Elkanah, her husband, tries to cheer up in verse 8. Am I not better to you than ten sons? (laughs) It doesn't sound like a man. (laughs) No, you're not. I'll trade you for two babies. (laughs) But Elkanah, he loved his wife. He's trying at least. He hated to see her so upset, and he tried to compensate for her barrenness by showing her preferential treatment. And of course, this probably only made the situation worse, added to the rivalry and sharpened Penina's pokes. After dinner, Hannah headed to the tabernacle to pour out her soul to the Lord. And in verse 11, she asks the Lord for a baby boy. And in doing so, she makes a twofold vow. First, she says, if God answers my request, I will dedicate this little boy to the Lord. That meant that she would turn him over to the priests and enroll him in the ministry of the tabernacle. Second, she says that she will also see to it that her boy becomes a lifelong Nazarite. And you remember that the vow of the Nazarite it was very important. The Nazarite was a walking billboard, an advertisement for the values of God's kingdom. Remember the three parts of the vow? He stayed away from the grape soda. He took no pleasure in the physical. Rather, he gained his pleasure from the spiritual. He never cut his hair. His attractiveness was found internally, not externally. And he avoided contact with death. His life stood for eternal, not temporal pursuits. You remember, Samson was also a Nazarite. But he had too many lapses in his timeline. He had too many withdrawals from God. In Samson's life, godliness failed to accrue and turn into character. And in times of testing, Samson yielded to temptation and violated his vow So, some similarities here. Outwardly, Samson and Samuel were alike, but inwardly, they were so opposite. I love Hannah's prayer in verse 11. She says, remember me and not forget your maidservant. For two years, my wife and I tried to have children, but to no avail. And I witnessed firsthand the passion that went into the prayers of a barren woman. Kathy latched on to Hannah's words in her own prayers, and she kept praying, Lord, remember me. We were at a pastor's conference in May of 1982, and Kathy asked the wives that were in attendance to lay hands on her and pray for her that she could have a child. And as they prayed, the Lord spoke through a word of prophecy. And one of the ladies said, by this time next year, you will have a son. And to make a long story short, our firstborn came into the world on the last weekend in May, exactly one year later. The prophecy was fulfilled and we were blessed. And still are blessed. Let me get that in there too. And in light of the prayer, the prayer that Kathy and Hannah prayed, We named our son Zachary, which means remembered of the Lord. And so this is kind of a special verse for me. It's a verse, too, that shows the power of passionate prayer. In James chapter 5, verse 17, tells us the effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man or woman avails much. Pour out your soul to God like Hannah, and God will pour out his blessings on you just as he did this woman of faith. In fact, Hannah's prayer was so passionate, so emotional, so personal, so uninhibited, Eli the priest thought she was drunk. He thought she'd been sipping on the sauce. Her lips were moving, but nothing was coming out of her mouth. She was praying in her heart. Unlike most folks who came to the synagogue, Hannah was not trying to impress the bystanders, She was getting down to business with God. And isn't that what prayer should be? Pouring out our heart, cutting to the chase, getting down to business with God. You've got to think that it's no accident that the man who was called the prophet of prayer had a mother who put it into practice. I have no doubt Samuel gained his passion for prayer and his power in prayer from his godly mother, Hannah. Guys, there's a difference between saying prayers and praying prayers. Do you just say your prayers or do you really pray? Too many people have turned prayer into a performance. It's a point on the Sunday program where a man gets up and prays in order for the people to hear him and be entertained or to be instructed or whatever. Reminds me of the man who was in church and he was asked to stand up and pray and he shouted out his prayer and one little boy turned to his mother and said, Mom, if that man lived closer to God, he wouldn't have to talk so loud. (laughs) And that's really true. Hannah prayed like her prayer mattered. Is that how you pray? Let me tell you something I have no doubt about. Prayers that don't matter to you here on earth aren't going to matter to God in heaven. Do you pray like it matters, like it's going to make a difference? That's how we need to pray. Eli eventually acknowledges the sincerity of Hannah's prayer. And he says to her in verse 17, go in peace And the God of Israel, grant your petition. And God did just that. Nine months after they arrived home, Hannah delivered a little boy. And she named him Samuel, which means heard by God. Hannah kept Samuel until she had been weaned. And then she fulfilled her vow. She brought him to Eli to be employed in the service of the tabernacle. I love her beautiful words in verses 27 and 28. She says, For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition which I ask of him. Therefore, I also have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he shall be lent to the Lord. So they worship the Lord there. I'll never forget the Sunday morning when everyone had left church except for me, my wife, my kids, and one little boy named Kyle. We looked around for Kyle's parents, but they were nowhere to be found. They had Mom had gotten into her car, Dad had gotten into his car, and they had both driven off thinking the other had Kyle. And here Kyle was, home alone at church. We laughed about that. They did what Hannah did, and they left their little boy at church. But hey, that's not what Hannah did. We don't want you to get the wrong impression. Please don't leave your kid here tonight. (laughs) Please don't turn your child over to the ministry of the tabernacle. I have four, James has four, eight is enough. (laughs) But we do need to understand the spirit of her action, for she realized that her son didn't belong to her, that he was God's property. And he had been given to her on loan. Parent, mom, dad, realize your kid is a loner. I mean, on loan to you. If I borrowed your car, I would go to great extremes to make sure that nothing happened to it. I didn't want to damage it. Because it doesn't belong to me. It belongs to you and I'm going to treat it that way. Likewise, be careful how you treat your son Or your daughter. Sometimes we think because we're footing the bill that they belong to us, but they don't. They belong to God. They've been entrusted to us, they've been loaned to us for a season. Keith Green used to sing a song, a wonderful song of devotion. It's called I Pledge My Head to Heaven for the Gospel. The second stanza, though, was more challenging. To me, it gets harder. He says, I pledge my wife to heaven for the gospel. It's one thing for me to pledge myself. It's another thing for me to risk my wife. But then the third stanza is the toughest of all. He says, I pledge my son to heaven for the gospel. Oh, it's okay for me to take a risk and trust the Lord and go to a foreign country to share the love of Jesus. But what's my reaction when my son or daughter wants to assume the risk and they want to go to share the love of Christ? Have we really dedicated our kids to God? Parenting is really a process of giving back to God the gift that He's given you. It starts from day one turning loose and giving back your son or your daughter to the Lord. You do it a little at a time, a day at a time. You give back more and more and more until one day you realize they're out there on their own and you've done your job. Author Alfred Torrey writes, It needs courage to let our children go. But we are trustees and stewards and have to hand them back to life and to God. As the old saying puts it, what I gave, I have. We have to love them and lose them. Parenting is really the process of turning loose of our children. In chapter 2, Hannah prays again. This time, though, she praises God for granting her request. Hannah's praise could be entitled, The Triumph of the Underdog. Verses 4 and 5 gives you a little of the flavor. She says, the bows of the mighty men are broken. And those who have stumbled are girded with strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread. And the hungry have ceased to hunger. God has turned the tables. She says, even the barren has borne seven. And she who has many children has become feeble. In verse 10, Hannah's prayer turns to prophecy. The Hebrew word Messiah Means anointed one. And there she refers to God's anointed one. God promises to give strength to his Messiah. Hannah's prayer, Hannah's praise is as passionate when you read it as her prayer. In chapter 2 verse 12, the scene shifts from Hannah's family to the family of Eli, the high priest. And we're told the sons of Eli were corrupt they did not know the Lord. It's sad. When men, who are, or who, when men who are supposed to represent God don't even know God. That's sad. That's tragic. The next few verses expose some of the crimes of the sons of Eli. When an animal was brought to the tabernacle to be sacrificed, it was to be divvied up. The fat was to be burned as a sacrifice to the Lord. The right breast and thigh were given to the priest to eat, and the rest of the sacrifice was eaten by the family that had made the offering. Eli's boys, though, were ripping off the people. They were taking all of the sacrifice for themselves, far more than their share. Reminds me of the pastor who was describing to his buddies how he dispersed the offerings that came in each Sunday at his church. He says, well, I'll tell you what I do. I take all the money, put it in a basket, throw it up in the air. And what God wants, he takes. And what comes back down, I just keep for myself. Hey, there are too many pastors today that are rip-offs. They're ripping off the people. Their sole motive is to pad their pockets. And here's the great tragedy. Notice The last line in verse 17, for men abhorred the offering of the Lord. People resented giving to God because they knew the money would be used foolishly or selfishly. Guys, if you give here to Calvary Chapel or not, that's between you and God. But if you don't give, I don't want it to be because of me. I don't want it to be because you don't think that the money is going to be managed well and properly. We account for every single penny that comes in and we try to spend every cent as wisely as we can. Eli's boys were not only pickpockets, but they were also perverts. Verse 22 tells us that they committed adultery in the door of the tabernacle. There was no shame. And I'm sure they gave their sexual antics a spiritual justification. Several years ago, I read where a promiscuous pastor justified sex with his secretary by calling it a kingdom relationship. She just had a special ministry to the man of God. Or so he said. I hear that kind of thing and it makes me want to puke. That's a classic case of calling evil good. It's a religious-sounding justification for a lewd and immoral and sinful act. And I'm sure that Eli's boys conjured up similar kinds of justifications for their despicable behavior. What's worse, though, than their sin is their father's weakness. Eli hears about his sons, and all he does is slap the back of their hand. Look in verse 24. He says, no, my sons, no, 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 you boys don't do that. For it is not a good report that I hear, you make the Lord's people transgress. And that's as far as he takes it. He levies no punishment, he takes no action. Hophni and Phineas are turning people off to God, and Eli offers only a mild rebuke. Reminds me of the man who was determined to stand up to his wife. He said, you better watch out. You're making me mad. You're going to bring out the beast in me. His wife kind of snickered and said, who's afraid of a mouse? This was the boy's reaction to Eli's wimpy discipline. He didn't care. It didn't stop them. They knew that their dad was weak and impotent. Hey, let me tell you something. You can make a lot of mistakes with your kids, but please don't be weak. Please be strong. Please take a stand. Please administer discipline. Don't let them run over you. Battles will be fought and you have to win the battles. That's the key to parenting. The parent has to win the battles. You've got to be strong. God is not afraid to take action. In verse 27, an unnamed man of God visits Eli and prophesies that God will cut off Eli's household. Eli's descendants will all die young and his two sons will bite the bullet on the very same day. And it's amazing to me that in the midst of all of this corruption, all this unhealthy tolerance, we're told in verse 26 of chapter 2, And the child Samuel grew in stature and in favor both with the Lord and men. And not amazing? Samuel is growing and prospering under the care and tutelage of Eli. His mother just visits him once a year. The rest of the time, he's being reared by this old priest. And that boggles my mind. Why would God entrust the upbringing of a child like Samuel, who will play such a pivotal role in the future of this nation? To a father who has failed so miserably with his own kids. Why would God do that? And here's the answer. His amazing grace. God is giving Eli a second chance at being a parent. Guys, perhaps you've blown it as a parent. Perhaps you've made mistakes Rearing your sons and daughters. But the Lord has blessed you with another opportunity. Perhaps you're now the parent of a blended family. Kids are once again under your roof. Maybe you've just had another child and you're starting over again. Or maybe you now have input into the life of a grandchild. You're getting a second chance. Or maybe your kids are still home. You've blown it. They know it. You know it. But God is calling you to seek a fresh start. He wants you to humble yourself and ask them for forgiveness and seek a second chance from God and from your kids. Be the parent that God desires. Be the parent that your kids deserve. God is giving you a second chance. And there's some lessons for you in chapter 3, verse 1. Then the boy Samuel ministered to the Lord before Eli, and the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no widespread revelation. Notice in a day of widespread secularization, Eli encouraged and instructed Samuel to minister to the Lord. He maintained a spiritual emphasis in this young man's life, even when there was no spiritual emphasis in the society and in the culture. Eli and write it down, was an active parent. The word active. He was active. Note, Samuel ministered to the Lord where? Before Eli. Eli was there. He was active in this child's life. He was right there engaged and involved spiritually. Good parents bring their kids to church. Good parents read the Bible to their kids. Good parents help them to decipher problems through a spiritual lens. Good parents keep them in the tabernacle ministering to the Lord. They're active in their children's lives. One night Samuel was asleep when he arose, when he was aroused by a voice that called his name. Samuel thought it was Eli and he ran to the bed to see what he wanted and of course it wasn't Eli. It was the voice of the Lord, not the voice of Eli. But it's important to note That when Samuel was upset or surprised or needed help, look where he turned. He knew he could come to Eli, which brings us to another word. Eli was accessible. And all good parents are. Samuel knew by how Eli treated him that Eli considered him to be important, that he could run to him whenever he had a need. A survey was taken a number of years ago of children across America. And the question was posed, What three things does your father say most often? The top three were, I'm too tired. We don't have enough money and keep quiet. If you added to that, not now, in a minute, and ask your mom, you'd have all six. A little boy once said, I know my dad loves me when he reads me books. And then he added, and I know he really loves me when he doesn't skip any of the words. We need to never forget that kids spell love. T-I-M-E. Be accessible to your kids. In verse 6, again, God calls Samuel, but he mistakes God for Eli. Parents, understand, every child is liable to mistake God's voice for your voice. Their earthly dead is usually a child's first impression of their heavenly dead. This was hammered home to me one night recently when I was praying with Mac. And in his prayer, he kept flip-flopping, reverting back and forth, referring to God first as God and then as dead. Dad. And he would refer to God, God, Dad, God, Dad, and prayed for several minutes that way. And I realized how closely in his little mind he associated his heavenly Father with his earthly Father. A good parent will always remember that they are an ambassador of God. There's another word, ambassador. Christian musicians Phillips, Craig, and Dean have put to music a father's prayer. Here's the memorable line from the song. God, I want to be like you because he wants to be like me. God, I want to be like you because my little boy wants to be like me. That's a good reason. Parents, always remember you represent God to your child. And of course, the Lord calls Samuel a third time. And when he comes to Eli, the wise old priest now realizes what's really going on. Hey, his eyesight is gone, but his insight is still sharp. And he was aware, another word, aware of what was happening in young Samuel's life. Eli tells Samuel to go back and lie down. But this time, when the voice calls, he should respond, Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. And that's exactly what Samuel does. Guys, an effective parent looks for insight into what's happening in their child's life. Is God speaking to my child? If he is, I want to encourage my child to listen. Is my child confused? If he is, I want to offer an explanation. Are they afraid? I need to give comfort. Parents need to have their antennas up at all times. They need to be sensitive and insightful Good parents are always looking for that teachable moment where they can bring God's truth to bear upon the need of their child. And I'm always amazed that Eli went back to sleep. (laughs) Now, if I knew that God was talking to my son in the other room in an audible voice, I wouldn't be going back to sleep. I'd have my ear pressed to the door. I'd be eavesdropping. But evidently, Eli wanted Samuel to gain some autonomy, another word, in his own relationship with God. He wanted Samuel to develop his own intimacy in his own interaction with God. He didn't want his relationship to be just a second-hand relationship through his parents. He wanted to have his own interaction with God. That's a wise parent. Eli knew when to take a hands-on approach, but he also knew when to take his hands off. If God is giving you a second chance as a parent, pay attention, model these right attitudes, remember these words, be active, be accessible, be an ambassador, be aware, and provide autonomy when it's appropriate. Now, the message that the Lord gives to Samuel is an affirmation of the judgment that's going to be poured out upon the house of Eli. And in verse 13, the Lord says, For I have told him, meaning Eli, that I will judge his house forever for the iniquity which he knows, because his sons made themselves vile, and he did not restrain them. Samuel was reluctant to share such a severe message with Eli, but the priest pried it out of him. And we're told in verse 18 that Eli accepted his imminent judgment while Samuel continued to grow and become established as a prophet of the Lord in Israel. There's one more point here for moms and dads. Understand, a parent's primary purpose is to restrain their kids. The other night, I took a bar of soap and washed out a little boy's foul mouth. That same night, I made another one give me 75 push-ups for having a raunchy attitude. It's a constant battle. Your kids are sinners. They're little sinners. They're sinners by nature. The Bible and just one night in our preschool department will prove it to you if you don't believe me. And it's a parent's job. It's our primary job to curb their rebellion and to insist on their obedience. Eli failed to restrain his kids. and God brought judgment on his house forever. Chapter 4. Mark's the beginning of the end for the house of Eli. Israel goes to war with their arch enemies, the Philistines. And round one goes to the enemy. The men of Israel, they look for help. They're calling for backup. But rather than cry out to the Lord, they bring out the ark of the Lord. The ark of the covenant was there in Shiloh. It occupied the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle. You remember the ark, it was the gold-plated box with the two cherubim on the lid. And it was over this ark that the visible presence of God was revealed and manifested itself there in the tabernacle. But the men of Israel, they made a mistake. They assumed the ark had powers of its own. And so they treated it sort of like a four-leaf clover, like a good luck charm, a rabbit's foot. Israel must have watched that Indiana Jones movie, Raiders of the Last Ark, and how the Ark burned off the Nazi swastika off the side of the wooden crate, you know. And they must have thought, man, there's power in the Ark. They confused the movies with the Bible. For the Ark was just a box. What made the Ark of the Covenant so special and holy was that God chose to rest over it while he revealed his glory in the tabernacle. Israel needed to trust in God himself, not in the things of God or in the relics of God. You see, they fell victim to what I call a misplaced faith. This was a recurring mistake throughout Israel's history. In Jeremiah's day, the Jews thought they were invincible because the temple was there in Jerusalem. Oh, because the temple is here, God will never allow us to be destroyed. In Romans 2, Paul discusses the Jews' misplaced confidence in their knowledge of Scripture. Just because they possessed the law, just because they knew the law, they felt immune from its judgments. They gave no thought to actually obeying the law, which was what was important to God. Hey, you and I can become guilty of a misplaced faith. We think because we go to church. Or because we attend a weekly Bible study, or we serve on the worship team, or we teach Sunday school, that we'll be okay. Everything will be fine. Or we assume, God, because of what I'm doing, this is why you need to help me. Look at all I do. Again, this is a misplaced faith. I'm trusting in my works rather than in Christ's work. It can be so subtle. Just because we've listened to a Christian CD or because we've read a few verses of our Bible or because we've gone through a chapter of a Christian book or even talked on the telephone with a other believer about spiritual things, we can assume that we've been with God. In other words, we can indulge ourselves in the things of God without really getting in touch with God himself. And I call that a misplaced faith. Don't put your trust in the things of God. Put your trust in God alone. And here we see what happens when believers misplace their faith. When the ark shows up in the camp of the Hebrews, they get excited. A roar goes up as loud as a thunderclap. It even scares the Philistines. But look at the outcome in verse 10. The Philistines fought. And Israel was defeated and every man fled to his tent. There was a very great slaughter, and there fell of Israel 30,000 foot soldiers. Also, the ark of God was captured, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. Now, in the second half of chapter 4, the news of the defeat arrives in Shiloh. And I'm sure it was no surprise to Eli that his sons were dead. That had been foretold. But what shook him up? Was the capture of God's ark. It was more than he could handle. And we're told that he fell off his stool at the shock of the news. And since he was 98 years old, and since he was just plain fat, the fall broke his neck and he died. In his obituary in verse 18 reads, He had judged Israel 40 years. Eli was not the only person shaken by the news of the ark's capture. Phineas' wife was with child at the time. And the shock triggered her labor. And she died giving child birth to a child. But before she breathed her last, she named the boy. And she called him Ichabod, which means no glory. And she cries out in verse 21, For the glory has departed from Israel. It's tragic when God's glory departs from a nation, or from a church, or from a person's ministry, or from a person's life. And yet time and time again, God has had to write the name Ichabod over the door. In chapter 5, the Philistines discover that the ark of God is more than they can handle. Again, the ark had no powers of its own, but it represented the presence of God. And God uses the ark now to make a point to the enemies of Israel. The Philistines may have defeated the army of Israel, but God himself remains unconquerable. And he proves it now in these next couple of chapters. Understand, in ancient times, A battle was not just the contest between two armies. The ancients viewed it as, my God pitted against your God. It became a test of deities. And this is why the Philistines brought the ark to the temple of their God, the fish God, Dagon. The idol of the Philistines had the lower torso of a fish and the upper torso of a man. And they worshiped this idol. And they gave this idol credit for the victory over the Israelites. Things were a little fishy when they brought the ark into the temple of Dagon. They situated it in a subservient position to Dagon. They were suggesting, of course, that their God was greater than the God of the Hebrews. But the next morning, when they re-entered the temple they discovered that the statue of Dagon had fallen down on its face before the ark as if it were bowing and worshiping the God of the Hebrews. So they tried it again. This time, when they came back the next morning, Dagon was again on the floor. And this time, the impact of the fall had broken off his head and his hands. The Philistines thought that Dagon had been victorious over Jehovah, the God of the Hebrews. But it was Jehovah who is now getting ahead of Dagon. It's interesting, so often we think that it's up to God. Sorry, so often we think it's up to us to protect God's reputation, don't we? So often we think it's up to us to fight God's battles for him. But here, his people have been unfaithful. And yet God sees to it himself that the battle is won, that he is glorified. That the dagons of the world bow down to him. God is powerful. God really doesn't need our help. He uses it for sure. We're blessed because of it, but he doesn't need our help. Don't ever think that he does. Verse 6 says, The hand of the Lord was heavy on the people of Ashdod. And here's the only time in my life I have ever felt sorry for a Philistine. It says, he ravished them and struck them with tumors. And the word could be translated, hemorrhoids. From a man who knows, this is a severe Serious, bare knuckled kind of judgment. And remember, this is long before the days of suppositories and preparation age. No doubt about it, this is a no holds barred judgment. God hits below the belt, literally. Here's a true story I clipped out of the newspaper in anticipation of teaching this passage. Just been waiting to use it. Dateline, New York. A woman bedridden after hemorrhoid surgery became infuriated when her husband with her husband for leaving her alone while he went fishing and shot him to death when he got home, police said. Authorities said seeing her husband Edward traips off with a cooler of beer to spend Sunday afternoon with his friends was too much for Gil Murphy who was obliged to remain in bed on her stomach. When she heard him return six hours later, she got up, walked to the porch with a shotgun, (laughs) and fired through the door, then called 911. Murphy, 47, died Monday morning. Now, if this woman was truly tried by a jury of her peers, and I mean hemorrhoid sufferers, I am absolutely sure she would walk free. (laughs) Going off with a cooler of beer while she's laying in bed recovering from hemorrhoid surgery. Don't do that on Valentine's Day. (laughs) He deserved to be shot. Imagine now the whole city of Ashdod suffering from this pandemic of hemorrhoids everybody's crabby, everybody's crotchety. <laughs> everyone is at home everyone is taking a sits bath. The consensus is we're outflanked. Let's get this thing behind us once and for all. <laughs> And that's why they ship the ark off to the neighboring city of Gath. But before long, all Gath is taken aback. <laughs> For again, God strikes this city with tumors. The men of Gath send the ark to Ekron. They're playing hot potato with the ark. And look at verse 10. The Akronites cried out saying, They have brought the ark of God of Israel to us to kill us and our people. Hey, I'm telling you, a bad case of hemorrhoids will kill you. After just seven months, the Philistines surrender and they decide to send the ark back to Israel. The Philistines and many a man and woman since have been humbled by hemorrhoids. And so the Philistines, they set the ark on a cart. Drawn by two cows. And with the ark, they send an offering, hoping that God will accept it and cause him to bring healing to their land and to their people. Now, the offering that they send is so unusual. They put into a chest and load up on this cart five golden tumors and five golden rats. Now, I have no idea what a golden hemorrhoid looks like. <laughs> nor is it something I or you need to try to imagine. The rats may have, may be a signal to us that more was involved than just the hemorrhoids. Perhaps a plague had triggered a serious disease that had helped to wipe out a lot of the people. The disease may have been carried by the rats that may have also been Part of the problem. They load this up on the cart and the cows, you guys are shaking your head. You know, I'm not writing this. This is there in the book, you know? Okay. The cows pull up in a field near Beth Shemesh, which was a city on the border of the Philistine territory. But the men of Beth Shemesh, they too make a horrible mistake. You've heard the expression, curiosity killed the cat. It killed more than a cat in in Beth Shemesh. For the men of the city let their curiosity cause them to sin. Hey, here's the ark. I wonder what's inside. Remember at the time, the two tablets that Moses brought down from Mount Sinai were there. The jar of manna, the rod that budded, all were inside the ark. And they were tempted. Man, I wonder what that manna tastes like. Boy, let's, let's, let's just look in. Let's just see what those tablets look like. Curiosity. And so they opened the ark to look inside, but in doing so, they violated its sacredness. For you remember, only the priests were to handle the ark. And because of their curiosity, God broke out upon the men of Bethshemus and thousands of people were killed in judgment. Be careful with your curiosity. God has made us curious people. Curiosity is good. Curiosity is what causes us to look deeper into the things of God. Curiosity is what causes me to long more for heaven. It's what keeps me going back to the Word of God, studying it, to try to unearth new treasures and and see new shades of meaning and behold new wonders of God. Curiosity is a good thing. But when you allow curiosity to lead you astray, it can be a bad thing. When you let your curiosity go places on the Internet that you shouldn't go, when you let it pick up literature that you shouldn't read, when you let it cause you to take that remote control and dial onto stations that you shouldn't watch, then curiosity becomes a terrible thing, a thing that can lead you to sin and eventually can not only kill the cat, but it can kill you. Now, this story says to me that there are two extremes that we can go with the things of God. The ark being a thing of God. On the one hand, we can overvalue the things of God. The articles, the tools of God. And we can misplace our trust in them. We can expect them to work on our behalf. When it's God, we should be trusting. But on the other hand, we can fail to give them the respect that they deserve because of what they represent. For example, in one sense, a Bible is just paper and print and cowhide. But in another sense, this is a sacred book. Don't turn your Bible into an idol, but do treat it with the respect that it deserves because of what it contains. It's just my conviction but when I'm carrying a stack of books, I always put the Bible on top. When I'm studying, I don't put this commentary or that commentary on top of my Bible. I always put my Bible on top. And that's just me. You don't have to do that. But to me, that conveys respect. This is an important book, and I need to respect it for what it is. It deserves a preeminent place. There's two extremes we can go with the things of God. We can undervalue them or we can overvalue them. After the disaster at Bethshemoth, the ark is taken to Kirath-Jerim, where it was kept for the next 20 years. Why it wasn't returned to Shiloh, we really don't know. Perhaps the tabernacle was damaged when the Philistines took the ark captive. For those next 20 years, Samson will wage his guerrilla warfare against the Philistines. And though he'll win a few skirmishes, the nation as a whole remains under Philistine control. It takes Samuel to rally the people and show them their need for revival. So in chapter 7, verse 3, Samuel addresses the nation. And he conveys an important truth. Here is the route to revival. He says, if you return to the Lord with all your hearts... Then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtoreths, which are one of the foreign gods, from among you, and prepare your hearts for the Lord and serve Him only. He will deliver you from the hand of the Philistine. Guys, here here are the keys to revival. If you're looking for personal revival in your own heart, if you're looking for revival in your family, if you're looking for spiritual revival in a church or in a nation, here are the keys. First, return to the Lord with all your heart. Exalt the Lord to His rightful place in your life. Submit to His Lordship. Make Him king and treat Him as such. Second, remove any foreign gods. Rid your life of anything that is a rival to your devotion and love for Jesus Christ. Third, ready your heart. Stir up an anticipation, an expectation of God, of what God wants to do. And fourthly, reserve your efforts and your energies for the service of God. Serve Him only, we're told. Get involved. Express your faith through service. Here's the four keys. Return. Remove. Ready. And reserve. And God will revive your cold heart. The people obey the words of Samuel. And they gather at Mizpah, seven miles north of Jerusalem. And there Samuel prays for the nation. And in verse 6, he performs a ritual that solidifies their commitment to the Lord. He pours out water. Now... Why is this a symbol of their commitment to God? Very simple. Can you think of a more irretrievable act than pouring out water? Hey, once the liquid tumbles from the pitcher, it can never be fully retrieved. Once it's gone, it's gone. And this is the kind of commitment that God wants us to make to him. He wants our commitment to be an irretrievable act. Lord, I dedicate myself to you. Lord, I give you my life. And Lord, I'll never take it back. I'm giving my life to you, and I'll never try to retrieve it again. It's yours. It belongs to you forever. That's the kind of commitment God wants from us. Do you remember Twiggy Sanders of the Harlem Globetrotters? He had that routine he did with the basketball on the rubber band. He'd stand on the free throw line and he'd throw it up and it'd snap right back to him. You remember that? Hey, there are a lot of people that have a twiggy commitment to Christ. Oh yeah. They'll throw up their heart to God but then they'll snap it right back. They'll give Him their time but oh, they'll get it right back. Snapping it right back, just retrieving it right back. Oh, for us to pour out our lives to the Lord. In an irretrievable act, it's like pouring out water. When the Philistines heard that Israel had gathered at Mizpah, they decided to attack. Samuel interceded and God came to Israel's defense. Verse 10 tells us what happened. But the Lord thundered with a loud thunder upon the Philistines that day and so confused them that they were overtaken before Israel. Josephus, the Jewish historian, also provides an account of this particular battle. Let me read it to you. God disturbed their enemies with an earthquake and moved the ground under them to such a degree that he caused it to tremble and shake insomuch that by its trembling, he made some unable to keep their feet and fall down. And by opening its chasms, he caused that others should be hurried down into them, after which he caused such noise of thunder to come upon them and made fiery lightning shine so terribly around them that it was ready to burn their faces. And so he suddenly shook their weapons out of their hands that he made them fly and return home naked which made it easier to apply the Preparation Age. In chapter 7, verses 16 and 17, we're told that Samuel served as a circuit preacher. He made a loop each year among four cities. He would travel to Bethel and minister, and then go to Gilgal, and then go to Mizpah, and then he would return home to Ramah. And in each place... He judged the people and he ministered to Israel. And that's where we'll stop tonight. Isn't it fun to study God's word? Isn't it a joy? Isn't there so much there? It's amazing what's there when you dig in. And take a look. Father, thank you for your word. We know we hold a special book in our hands. We believe, Lord, that your word is inspired from cover to cover. That each word is your word. And Lord, we thank you for the Bible. And Lord, we commit our hearts tonight to study it, to grow in grace and knowledge. So that we can please you, Lord. For Lord, you are the object of our desires and our affections. And Lord, we want to present our lives to you, Lord, an irretrievable offering. We want to just pour out our hearts to you, Lord. Lord, we know that if we'll pour out our heart to you, you'll fill it with your peace and your grace as you did Hannah. Lord, I pray you'll help us as parents, as believers, as members in the body of Christ. Help us, Lord, to be the people you desire us to be. We ask this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, let's all stand.